Uh, as you're turning to Romans chapter 12, which is where we will be momentarily, let me tell you about a trip we got to take. We were offered up a place in on the Nevada side of Heavenly Valley, and we were driving up there. We were trying to beat the storm that was coming. We drive a refrigerator regularly, and it doesn't have four-wheel drive, and so we're trying to make it over the pass before the storm, and once it gets into snow, it turns into like a walk-in refrigerator, so we're driving along, uh, and we cross the state line. We take a right. We head up the hill, and, um, and we were doing what a lot of us do regularly every single day. We were letting our phone think for us. So I had programmed in to my phone where we were going and and trusting that it knew where it was going because I certainly didn't know where I was going. And we were driving around and, and it kind of shows where your destination is, but it was taking a very circuitous route uh, to get there. And all of a sudden it took us into a darker and darker spot and it had us pull into this spot and there's nothing but utterly black wilderness around us. And it says this. Your destination is a quarter of a mile. Get out and walk to your destination. I've never heard my phone tell me to get out of my car and finish walking. It's now snowing at this point. Um, we're on icy hills. And, uh, and I'm like, well, Kurt, you know, kids, you heard the phone. Uh, no. At that point, I took over thinking uh, instead of allowing my phone to do the thinking for me. I tell you that story because of this. This is just like life. So you have bad thinking going on um, that leads you to dark and lonely wilderness places. So if your thinking is faulty, then your actions are faulty and you get lost and you get confused. Um, how many of you in this room are people watchers? Just raise your hand if you enjoy kind of watching people. Isn't that a kick? It, it, is, it is so fun to me. Um, I, I, I often have this question in my mind. I, I go, I wonder what that person is thinking. Um, one of the most fun people for me to watch are children. Because uh, children just can get lost in imagination, and they're just doing these things. I watch my kids play with, to me, it seems like the most mundane thing. And I go, I wonder where they are in their mind right now. I wonder what they're thinking. Now, if the words ever escape your lips, um, there's usually a different connotation going on, and it's this. What were you thinking? Right? And usually it's not in a, in a pleasant, people-watching, calm kind of a way. Um, usually the answer is either A, um, I wasn't thinking, or B, you know, my brain is broken. So I was thinking, but it wasn't going so well for me. Um, here's the reality. Track with me. The reality is all of us walk in this truth, that we would have to answer C, which is all of the above. That oftentimes we don't use the mind that God gave to us and apply it to our lives. And the second reality is this. Because of original sin, the fall, the original design of the mind has been severed, broken. So it really is true that our brains are broken. So we, we would answer C, all of the above. Now this word sanctification is going to be used a lot in Romans chapter 12. Sanctification is simply that process of God bringing us back to wholeness. So something's been broken by the fall, broken by our sin. And sanctification is that process of God rebuilding, reforming Christ in us and, and building us back into wholeness, into the original design. This morning, we're looking at a sanctification passage. Um, it lets us know what God is forming in us and how we can cooperate. Now, God designed your mind. He gifted you with your mind. And you have a responsibility to glorify God with your mind. You know how you glorify God with your mind? You use it as it was designed to be used. Now, when I think about the different ways that God parents us, I think God has given us a lot of leash on this one, don't you think? I mean, our minds wander in church to some pretty dark places. No, I'm not reading your text or email. I don't work for the NSA. I just know human nature. We could be sitting right in church... We've put our body where we want our body to be. We've, we've availed ourselves. And, and right in the middle of that, our brains can just go off on places. Our lips are singing praises to God. If God parented the way that some of us in this room parented, man, we'd be zapped. I'd be preaching along. Poof! Someone would just turn to, to dust. Whoa! Yes, they weren't thinking pure thoughts. God's given us a lot of leash on our thinking. He's very, very gracious with us, is what I want to point out to you. I grew up 
in a Christian home, and um, I was asked this question often, and it meant something to me my junior year. It didn't mean something to me much before my junior year. But we would ask each other in youth group. I would be asked by a small group leader. I'd be asked by my youth pastor, asked by my parents, hey, how's your thought life? Anyone ever been asked how your thought life was before? Anyone track with me in that? Any 90s youth kids? Come on, that was, that was huge in the 90s. How was your thought life? This is a great exercise. It's Christian speak. If you're kind of new to Christianity, let me just give you the code. It's like the decoder so you can speak Christianese. Here it goes. This is Christian speak for, are you taking every thought captive to Christ? 2 Corinthians. Are you dwelling on what is true and honorable and just and pure and all the rest? From Philippians 4, 8. Is your mind set on things above or on earthly things? And when we think about last week, are you regarding yourself as dead to sin and alive to God, Romans 6? And in regards to this very passage, are you conforming to the thoughts around you or are you being transformed in your thought life? How is your thought life? Let me commend that practice to you. That's a really good thing to ask one another. How's your thought life going? God has much to say about our thoughts because he cares for us so much. And notice the command to action on our part. Each one of these. Take, think, set, consider. The truth is, your thought life has a counterpart. It's thought death. The Bible also tells you all kinds of things about what will kill you from the inside out. Literally, from the brain out. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but, it, but its end is the way to death. You know, we could spend the rest of our service just giving testimonies to saying, yep, been there. And I can't blame it on my phone for thinking wrong. It was faulty thinking on my part. It seems so right to go after this business venture. That person seemed so right for me, and everyone agreed with me. In the end, it was death. James warns, on seeking wisdom apart from faith, saying that that person is a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. And look at this passage in Proverbs. Proverbs talks all about the fool and the wise person. It's talking about our thinking. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat at the highest places in town, calling to those who pass by, by, to those who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of shale. Friends, the way we think steers our life. There's a little kid song, Oh, be careful little feet where you go. You know why that's so important? Because where your feet take you expose you to patterns of thought and ideas. I want to commend you. In fact, I'm so thrilled that you have made your body available to God today by sitting in church. What you are doing right now feels completely normal to, to many of you. This is a normal part of Sunday. It would feel weird not to be in church with your church family. But to some of you, this is a new practice. Let me just say, thank you. And this is a good choice. Availing your body places yourself in the words of God, in the path of God. Here's my desire this morning. Here's my aim this morning. I want to deliberately steer your thoughts toward the Bible, which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. Listen to this and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Whatever you're around, whatever's being talked about, we're wired this way. We can't help but just start thinking along those things as well. So you coming week after week is saying, and we, we want to we get our thoughts thinking God's thoughts. Now I'll say up front, much prayer is required. And I'm not being facetious or joking. There's a very imperfect messenger and so this is why the first sermon I preached this year is by far, I think, the most important one I'll preach all year, and that is firsthand. Get it for yourself. I plead with you when you leave this place and in preparation for coming to church, read it for yourself. Get into God's word and let him speak directly to you.
All right, by way of review, our bodies are good and gifted to us by a loving creator. We have a responsibility to steward our body well. That means there's definitive truth of how to steer it well and definitive truth of how not to steer it well. It's not just a free-for-all. We are to present our bodies, if we're a Christian, as a living sacrifice, an instrument for good, not an instrument for sin and wickedness. Yet our bodies aren't mindless, and we don't have disembodied minds, like the brain in a vat from Philosophy 101, that if you haven't yet, you'll get there in Philosophy 101 class uh, in college. The body and the mind go together. So even though we took verses 1 and 2 and separated them into two weeks, it's really important that we, we hear these and think about these together. So God also gifted us with brains, with logic, with reason. And he deeply affirms both mind and body. And he clearly lays out for us the way it works. And the way it works is we have a responsibility to steward this gift well to honor him. Today it's interesting because we're going to think about our thoughts. We're going to use our mind to think and consider and, and, and think rationally about our mind. And even that in itself, according to the Bible, mirrors the maker, so we're, we're made in his image. And that itself is a gift that we can even stop and ponder such things. Not next week, because next week's going to be sort of a special service. But in two weeks, we're going to move on in Romans. And in verses 3 and following, we're, 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 instru- we're given very clear instructions about a very specific realm to think about. And that is our own selves. And here's the highlights of it. Don't think too highly of yourself and think of yourself with sober judgment. So again, God's given us the design on how to think even about our very selves. It's not hard to see that we're integrated beings, that mind and body matter. Um, The sporting world knows this well, that the mind feeds the body and vice versa, and they kind of work off of each other. Rob Collins, uh, engage for a second. He has his back to me. Um, If you have ever purchased golf clubs, uh, don't they tell you that it's important that it looks good, that that the golf club looks good from where you're standing, and you you have a good vibe about it, like like your thoughts about the golf club are, are good? In his world, yes. Okay. We've just entered Rob's world. Thank you for sharing us about your world. Um, so, so, so the point is, if it looks off-center to you, even if it's not, if your brain registers that that club's a little off-center, um, or it's too long for you, or a little bit too short, or your buddy says, wow, why are you playing with such short clubs? Like, that will get in your head, and it will actually feed off of your body. Let me take another one, because Rob didn't do so good. Kidding, Rob! Thank you, Rob, for that. Um, if, if you're on a bike ride and you know that your bike has been fitted to you and specced for you and the geometry fits you, that plays in as you're riding that bike to your brain. Uh, some of you are skiers and snowboarders and we're praying for snow. It's, it's, it's slow to come this year. But if you're convinced, if you saw them wax your board and sharpen your edge... Doesn't that play out on the slopes? Like, you lean into that a little bit differently. So if you're motorcycle riders, and if you get brand new tires on that thing, then you just lean into it, you're like, I'm so grippy. There may be no actual factual truth to that, but it, it plays on you. So mind and body play really well together. It also feeds the bad, though. If you are a runner and you bonked on a certain climb before and you get to that climb and your brain begins to tell you, man, last time I just, I could not make this hill. I don't think I have what it... Takes, and all of a sudden you feel your body sort of going down that same direction. The Olympics are coming, and we love to watch the Olympics. And something that they'll talk about a ton, I guarantee you, is, is this exact fact, that, that the mind and body working together. You ever see the losers or the downhill skiers or the ice skaters backstage? Like before they go on, the skiers are going... Like they're doing this whole deal. Why? Because their mind, they want to get their mind going because they know that will affect their run. So I want to just lay out some real light, easy to grab onto examples because we're going to get to some other ones later on that are heavier and they're a little bit less tangible than a ski run. The truth of this, the mind and body feed off of each other is true way beyond sports. Let me put this up in front of you and let you just think about it. You can jot it down if it would help. The way you think about the world determines the way you act in the world. What I'm saying is this. 
Every single person you ever lay eyes on has a worldview, and it's built on a foundation of some version of truth. And I use truth in quotations uh, because it's, it's, it may not be true. So everyone's worldview is built on a foundation of some, some series of truths that are out there. And what you see is vastly different actions and values that can be traced to vastly different worldviews that have their foundation built on vastly different truths. Are you tracking with me? I know this is a little bit cerebral this morning. So that's why you just go, how can you think that that's true? Like that, that, that is opposite of what's actually true. It's because they have a, a, a worldview that's built on some other truths. And so if this is true and this is false, and, and for a friend of yours, all the things you consider false are actually true to them, and these are false, then this person's building on sand and I'm building on the rock. And this is why we have such um, diversity and, and vastly different actions and values pouring out. Now, there is a popular truth being preached today. And once again, I'll use the word truth this way. There is a popular truth being espoused, and it's this. That truth itself is not objectively knowable. Another way you may have heard this, and we've talked about this before, that there is no absolute truth. It comes in modern-day street language like this. That's ah, great. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. So what it is is that truth is fluid. It's not objectively knowable. And, and so there it is. It's all up for debate. Now, I have two sort of myth-busting questions for you. If you ever get into this discussion, um, I believe this is not true, by the way. Here is, um, here is the first question that you can ask. You can ask this person, is that true? Is what you just said true? Because if they answer yes, do you see that it's self-defeating? They just said that all truth is, is up for grabs. If there is no absolute truth, we can't actually know. So that is a truth statement. So you just ask them, well, is that true? And if they go, well, yes. Then you go, self-defeating. Like, that's nonsense. That doesn't make any logical sense. If they say no, then you go, great, we're all clear. Like, that's not true. I mean, it's just simple. Like, we, we, we move on from that. We're not troubled by that anymore. There's no point even discussing it. Here's the second one. The second one is hits home a little bit more. Do you really believe that? Do you really live this way? And if they say no, then they're just a hypocrite. They go around espousing things to be true, but they don't really live it or believe it, so they probably don't even really believe it's true. If they say yes, here's what, here's what I want you to do. I want you to secretly follow them around. Kind of creepy. Um, I want you to follow them around to the next time that they exchange money with someone. If they go to a store, if they go to their bank, and see if there is objective reality values assigned to a price tag and to the money leaving their pocket. All of a sudden, they would say, no, 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 sorry. But in that situation, truth is knowable, and it's objective and unchanging. So there, there are just a couple of things that if you sort of engage your brain, um, it turns the conversation from that cul-de-sac of nonsense, which all of you have been in these with friends and family, and you just go, why are we stuck? Like, why are we here? What I would put out to you this morning is that truth is objective. Truth is knowable. You can discover it by testing and by observation and by synthesizing it with other things that you know to be true. We do this all the time and we live our lives based on this. This whole series is colossal truth. It is, it is, it is like shoving in our cultural face and it offends some of us on a regular basis. That there is absolute truth that is totally true for people everywhere in every culture right now. And, it, and it's been true for all of time. It stands the test of time because it just simply is true. The way you think about the world determines the way you act in the world. Romans 12, let me start in verse 1 because it's good to hear these two together. I appeal to you, God's word, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God... 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus thought enough of the way that you think to include it. Remember what he said? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. Matthew 22. So the mind's important. Again, when you look at both of these statues, both statues, well, not really because they're statues, but both statues represent people that have both a body and a mind. The one clearly is showing off the body. That's what we're focusing on. That's why I put it up last week. And the other one is clearly thinking. And so we put that one up. But, but both have uh, a both. And the point of it is God created us integrated and whole. And there are worlds of implication to this, listen to me, that right now in our culture are being absolutely thrown out the window. There are worlds of implications that you are made an integrated whole, body and mind, and both matter, and both affect each other. Think about computer hardware and computer software for a second. None of us would say with our laptop, you know, the hardware's working really, really good. Thumbs up. Software, nowhere to be found. It's on the fritz, it's got virus, I can't even do anything with it, but the hardware's all good. Conversely, we would never say, man, the software's top-notch, can't get it to run on anything. My phone's just shattered into pieces, and the hardware's busted, but we're 50-50. 50% in school is an F, right? So it is with computer hardware and software. They were, listen to this, designed to work together. I'm going to show you some things, and the scriptures are teaching us, that the body and the brain are designed to work together. And to separate them apart, or to disregard one of them, is working against its purpose. There are two really big ideas that are brought up in this passage. Culture, whether we're to conform to it or be transformed by thinking differently, and the will of God. And that it's discernible by testing and by scrutiny. Now, I want to walk through some examples um, that, that at least hit me on a regular, ongoing basis. If you are a student in a public school, I guarantee you, kids, that you're hitting it. By the way, most of them are off at winter camp. Uh, many of our high schools, uh, schoolers are leaders, and the middle schoolers are off at winter camp this weekend. Parents, if you have kids that that are in school, I I promise you that they are uh, bumping up against and and being shaped by and being asked these kinds of things and and they're they're being, uh, they're they're thinking about these things. I want to give you examples from culture because this is where Christianity is tested, uh, developed, and lived out. Right? We walk out of church and we go, God, what is your will? What is your will in this situation? What is your will in this giant trajectory that I think I'm on? How do I not just accept what is around me, but rather think your thoughts? We live in what is called a progressive part of the country. And I don't want to unfairly box in the wide range of worldviews that might be represented um, by those who would call themselves progressive and label themselves that way. So instead, I thought it might be more helpful to throw out some buzzwords and, and I think it would be really fair. I don't want to set up little fake straw man in church and then sort of rip it down. I, I think these are fair buzzwords of what, what generally friends of mine who label themselves progressive would say they're for or against. Okay, so let me throw some of these words out. Progressives generally are for things like inclusion and tolerance and science and logic and reason and advancement and free thinking. Does that sound fair? Those are buzzwords that I hear, and I go, yeah, those are things that I think if I were to come in wearing any shirt that represented positive things about any one of those, I think my sort of secular, naturalist, progressive friends would be like, cool shirt. Here's what they're against. They are against exclusivity, 
intolerance, the supernatural, faith in a deity, some kind of a god, and objective or absolute truth. Again, does that sound fair? Does that track with your experience? Okay. Now, we're not going to take time to do definitions, but definitions are massively important. Yesterday, I have the four youngers with me off on a hike in the beautiful, stunning forest uh, around Villa Montavo in Saratoga. And we come across a bridge, and the bridge is about this wide, and we cross this creek, and, um, and we get to the other. As we're walking across, I said, wow, I said, this is a narrow bridge. And one of my seven-year-olds says to me, um, hmm? like kind of gives me this quizzical look and says, why would you say that? And I'm thinking, like, narrow. Like, I'm just sort of questioning myself for a second. We just, went, we just went past a bridge that was about this wide, and this one was about this wide. I said, well, sweetie, because, you know, this one, this one is, is more narrow. The last one was wide. She goes, oh, that's what that means. I said, oh, what, what did you think it means? She goes, oh, I thought it meant that it curved. I go, oh, okay. Like, that's, all of a sudden it makes sense. So that was a little learning opportunity, and it straightened out in, in this seven-year-old's brain that, that narrow means opposite of wide. Okay, got it. Now we're on the same page. So with each one of these, we could do a whole sermon on what do we mean by tolerance or intolerance? What do we mean by exclusivity or institute? What do we mean by free thinking? What do we mean by advancement? I mean, do you see how worldview and thinking, like, just all of these are really important terms. So it's kind of important to define terms. Having said that, I'm going to move on and not define terms. Just, just painting a picture. Let me, let, me give you, let me give you two terms that may not be helpful because I think it may send our brains in some, in some directions. But liberal and conservative are often thrown around, and they're attached to these things. But what I don't want to do is I don't want to send you off on your party, a political party. I don't want to send you off uh, to, to news or fake news and which one is which. None of that. So instead of liberal or conservative... Um, here's what I thought would be more helpful. It would be more helpful to answer um, this one question. How did the universe come to be? How did everything that we see, and ourselves included, how did, how did it all get here? To one camp, and I don't think this fits liberal or conservative, it doesn't even fit those who would call themselves progressive or something different. Unprogressive. Remedial. I don't know. I don't know what the opposite is. Here it is. It just did. How did the universe get here? How did we get here? It just did. It is the result of time plus chance. That is one whole camp of people. Here is a second camp, and it's this. It was created on purpose. That the world and everything in it, including our bodies and minds, were designed intelligently on purpose. Those are two sweeping truths that can't be reconciled. We can't just have it be up for debate. Those are, those are irreconcilable differences. And there are people walking around with both of those truths that they're starting from and building their life on. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. We see that there is some resisting going on. We're to resist being just molded into the flow of thought that's all around us wherever we are. There's some cooperating going on. That there's reshaping and reworking and reforming that the renewal of the mind brings about in our lives. And finally, even the fact that there is a will of God that is knowable. You can discern what it is. You can figure it out. It's not just out there and we sort of hope that we get a, a little scent of it once in a while. It's, it's there and knowable. The tools, the very tools, that many of my progressive friends tout as their best friend, um, I think may be their worst enemy. Um, thought and reason and logic are most often thrown out, and there is a, there is a swell of pride when, when this is brought up often when I'm in conversation. And there's an accusation that I sort of carry around with me. When I say that I'm a Christian, when I say that I'm a pastor, when I say that I believe in, in a God that created us, um, there, there, is, there is a certain disdain that can kind of wash over. Sometimes it's very overt, and sometimes it's a little bit more subtle. 
And the very thing that I'm accused of as a Christian is often what my humanist, naturalist-leaning friends do, and that is this, to ignore scientific fact and plow ahead based solely on faith, believing what they wish were true rather than where the evidence leads them to present actual truth. Now, again, I'm going to do this in some very specific camps so we can kind of apply this and test this a little bit. I want to take some topics that are um, often hotly debated, and I want to sort of show some of the thinking behind it, and then the actions and policies that come from it. So, thoughts take place in bodies, and thoughts direct our bodies. Now, I know this sounds a little bit like kindergarten, but, but think about it. That's a really important statement. That we don't just think things that don't affect us physically. And the biblical worldview integrates the two of them. And doesn't say the body is bad or doesn't matter or is somehow subservient. Or it doesn't matter what you think, just as long as you have faith. And just some of these weird things that are lobbed sort of, sort of Christendom's way sometimes. Let me start with sexual ethics for a second. How prominent is sexual ethics right now in our news and in our news stories and in especially Hollywood? Hollywood is just being sort of blown up about this. So this is, this is a topic that some of you who are of great-grandparent age can't believe we're talking about this in church, uh, nor around the water cooler, nor around wherever. This is, just, this is just wide open now. For many, many, many years, I was a youth pastor for a long time, I was a college pastor for a long time, for many years... The argument was this, that if you believe that we were just a cosmic accident, then what you did with your body sexually didn't matter. There was no great moral proclamation to it. It was just matter bumping into matter. It was just cells interacting with each other. And, and, there's, and there's no, don't try to assign something. You're just trying to put boundaries that aren't even real there. That was where it was for years and years and years. What's interesting is that if you start at the place that we are time plus chance, doesn't it follow that that is the most sound, logical conclusion you can get to? Doesn't it? For me, it does. So here's what's curious. Harvey Weinstein. Have you heard this name? Harvey Weinstein's sexual thoughts began as a little seed in a fleshly mind that didn't please God, according to Romans. And that seed grew up And in a different season of his life, it has produced a harvest that, catch this, progressives and the most conservative Christian are outraged by. So what's going on behind the scenes of that? What's going on behind the scenes of that for someone who believes to their core that we are nothing more than time plus chance, I'm not sure what's going on in their mind, except that they set aside what logically should be true, and they go forward with what they wish were true. What they wish were true, that's what they're outraged about. This ought not be. I'll tell you what, this ought not be. It fits with my Christian worldview perfectly. I say, absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely, this ought not be. Let me give you some Christian thought. Write down 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13 through 20. Let me just read it for you. Listen carefully. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. When I look at what Harvey Weinstein and many others have done with their bodies, two other bodies, I am outraged by it. I'm outraged by it because I have a firm belief that our bodies and minds and everyone's body and minds were created with a design. And Harvey, you're violating that design. And that's why it wells up outrage to me. 
Because as you violate the design and your responsibility to God to not use your body for wickedness, it's affecting other people's lives and you're preying on the vulnerable. This is as evolutional theory as it gets, though. The strong survive. The strong genes, the strong, right? That's what moves forward in this. That's sexual ethic. Thoughts take place in bodies. Thoughts direct bodies. It matters how we think. Let me take another one. Transgender is a term that you have heard more and more in the last five years. Here's the general narrative. And by the way, if you take foster care classes, you will spend an entire session of your however many sessions, seven or eight weeks, learning from the county about how to think about the LGBTQ community and thought process. I will warn you, it will frustrate you. That's putting it mildly. The transgender narrative is this, that your authentic self is completely disassociated from your body. That what you feel is what is true regardless of scientific, scientific facts to the contrary. The body doesn't matter. On the leading edge, sort of the most extreme side of this, there are people um, promoting these ideas that are declaring child abuse when the doctor assigns gender by saying boy or girl when it comes out of the mother's womb. They're saying that's child abuse and that ought not be done because somehow the doctor is assigning the gender to that child. Gender dysphoria is the condition of experiencing conflict between your emotional and psychological identity as male or female and the body that you have. So when you hear gender dysphoria, that's, that's the term given to this, this conflict that is going on. Bruce Jenner, who graced the cover of my Wheaties box back in the maybe late 70s or early 80s, is perhaps the most famous person around this sort of whole genre of thought. His declaration of truth and subsequent surgical changes to his body are celebrated by many voices in our culture today. And this seems to counter science, reason, and logic. Now, let me give you a bit of Christian thought. I don't think this is controversial Christian thought. I just want to set some basic thinking in front of us. Again, go back to the worldview. Time plus chance is why we're here. We are here by a creator. We're designed with an intelligent mind. Here's Christian thought. Gender isn't assigned by a doctor, on the one hand, or declared true by an individual. Gender is not something that a doctor proclaimed over you or an individual says is true. It is gifted by God. It is designed into you by God. It's decided by God. Bruce Jenner, who goes by the name Caitlin, will always be at war with himself because of this. Because his brain and his body are in conflict, this will always be an issue. So celebrating and championing this is not the answer. Loving compassion and right thinking is. We are not identified by our feelings. Feelings constantly change, and feelings are not the most true thing about us. A decade ago, before transgender was nearly on the front runner, I've told you about this person I met named Heather, who was clearly a man in his 50s and homeless and struggling. And as he helped me and the team up in San Francisco on a very cold Sunday night just prior to Thanksgiving, give away all of the stuff that we had for two hours. Steve came out to me and had the big reveal. As we sat there and talked scripture and, and life and, and everything, he just said, you know, um, my, name, my name's not Heather, it's Steve. What, what do you think God thinks about the way that I'm living right now? How would you answer that? I said, he hates it and you're going to hell. No, I'm just kidding, I didn't say that. 
Let's delete that from the podcast. Um, here's what I said. Here, here's what I said. I, in a whisper of mine, I said, God, would you, give me, would you give me the words right now? Help me to think your thoughts. Help me to have your will. I just said, I said, um, I said Steve, I used the name that he now has offered up to me. I said, Steve, what, what do you think? He said, I don't think he likes it very much. <clears throat> do you see there was nothing more needed to be said about that? Here's what I highlighted. I said, Steve, for the better part of two hours, I said, you displayed generosity and compassion and selflessness. You didn't take the first and best stuff. I said, you helped guide me around to those who needed it the most. You brought help to those who needed it. I said, Steve, that's God's image on you. You know what I did? I just washed over the truth to him. Steve, your life was made on purpose. You were designed and gifted with a heart and with a brain and with a body. Um, He didn't stop and receive Christ. I handed him a New Testament. I got to pray with him. His interaction with me has changed me as much as my interaction with him. Loving, compassion, and right thinking. Not just championing and celebrating whatever people want to think. Let me move on. Thoughts take place in bodies. Thoughts direct bodies. How about the abortion topic? There's a fragmented view of self and body. Catch this. This is really bizarre. And some of you track this. Some of you don't. But the leading edge of the argument is no longer whether an unborn baby baby is a human being or not. That is undeniable fact. We have had medical advances that all of the bioethicists and everyone, no one argues that except some younger college students who come in and maybe haven't been privy to some of the information. So the argument has moved away from whether it's a baby or not, whether it's human or not. Uh, Many of you in this room remember when that was the argument. So what do you do with the fact that we now know that an unborn baby, which many bioethicists call a fetus, is biologically human? Well, here's what happens. Although biologically human, we're not going to argue there, they're not granted personhood. An unborn baby is not granted personhood. So catch this bizarre line of thought. Being human no longer guarantees human rights. Um, How are you granted personhood? Well, here's how it currently happens. You meet an arbitrary standard of development. So once you reach these certain developmental markers, now you're granted personhood. And until you reach those, you, unborn human being, are subject to life or death for any and all reasons, including medical research, including convenience. So... You may have heard of an actress called Scarlett Johansson. She was accepting an award from Planned Parenthood at a lunch in 2016, and she said these words. They're pretty chilling. A woman's right to choose what to do with her body shouldn't just be women's rights issue. It's the year 2016, and this is a human rights issue. Here's what's wild about that. I agree with her. I agree with her statement. I think we land on completely opposite sides of what we mean by that. Here's where I think her fatal flaw is in her argument. The human right she's referring to is the right of one human being to kill another human being for the sake of moving on with their life. That's what she's saying in her argument. And I would argue that the most basic human right is life. And the most vulnerable human beings of all are those in the womb. So when you get right thinking around it, we can move forward. Here's Christian thought. Each life has dignity, value, and worth simply because God chose to create it. And he stamped his image on that life. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Psalm 123.7 is not believed by many in our culture. Behold, children are a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, not a burden. Matthew 7.12, at its most fundamental level, listen to this. So in everything, Jesus said, 
Do to others what you would have do to you. Human being, do to other human beings as you would have do to you. We know it's a life now. We know it's a human being. So let's get outraged about it. Let's have action. Thoughts take place in bodies. Thoughts direct bodies, and bodies set policy and law. Euthanasia, by the way, is just the abortion logic in reverse. Once a human life fails to meet certain standards, they cease to be granted personhood and have it removed from them. A little bit of chilling study that I did this week on the final solution of the Nazis, same logic. Same exact logic. If we can grant, we know Jews are human beings, but they're not persons. They don't meet that standard, so we can kill them and not have our conscience burdened by it. I'm going to take one last one because it's very important and it's very prominent. Homosexuality. Born This Way is a song by Lady Gaga. Um, and it sort of sums up the idea that, um, that desires are genetic and not behavioral. Um, and so why would we deny that? Why, you know, why would we deny someone, um, and often it's compared to skin color, why would we deny personhood or rights or anything as, as long as someone was born that way? If you get inside the head, again, of an evolutionary scientist, then you must answer this question. You must think logically about this and say, an evolutionary scientist must argue that the inability for homosexual individuals to pass on genetic information, that is, to bear children, means that this gene should have become extinct a long time ago. Now, just think about, in your brain, what we actually observe. What we actually see is that as the gay lifestyle is moving, not just from socially accepted, but socially promoted, the number of people that you know that self-identify as being gay or homosexual or bi is skyrocketing. This does not make sense genetically. There is flawed logic. It's opposite of what the facts point to. Now, how do we reconcile that? I say we don't, unless we go back to a creator. If we're time plus chance, I, I don't see how this works. Here's how I want to present the Christian side of things. Sean Doherty is a Christian ethics professor in England. He wrestled with same-sex attraction his whole life and thought that the only option that he had to obeying God's word was to remain celibate. He didn't try to do theological gymnastics with the scriptures and make it say something it wasn't. He said, my only option, because I fear the word of God, is that I will remain celibate for the rest of my life. Today, he's happily married and has three children. Happily married to a woman and has three children. So what changed? Here's what he says. I began to reflect on the tangible fact that I am a man. And God's original design for me was to relate sexually to a woman, no matter what my desires or feelings were. It's not my feelings that determine my identity, but my physical body. And he says this didn't happen overnight. But think about it. The renewal of your mind, you'll be transformed. This didn't happen overnight. But over time, his feelings did begin to change. And what made him change was not guilt or shame. The fact was he grew up in a very accepting family and he attended a gay-affirming church. So this wasn't external things that kind of pressured him in to think a certain way. Nothing to do with external pressure. He began to think of his body as a gift from God and that formed the foundation of his identity. The worldview question at the very base of this do we accept the created structure as the hand of God, or do we reject it? If we reject a worldview that God didn't create it, and we have no responsibility to it and how we function in it, then that's going to set the course of our life. If we reject the created order of our very own body, we will be, as James says, in conflict, double-minded, until that's resolved. Proverbs 3, 5 lets us know not to lean on our own understanding and not to be wise in our own eyes. If you read just those parts of the verse, it leaves you asking this question. 
then what am I supposed to lean on? What am I supposed to think about? Here it is. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Now listen to how all that thought and mind stuff has bearing on the body. Listen to verse 8. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Some of you know what it is to have a sleepless night because of guilt. And sweet, deep, lasting, abiding peace because you're at peace with God. There's great news for sinners. It's not just the darkened ways of thinking that I've listed here, but for all of our broken sexuality, and your sexuality is broken because of the fall. Your thinking is flawed because of the fall. Your striving is flawed because of the fall. All the love that you have to give is, 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 is twisted and distorted because of the fall. So is your rule-keeping, so is your pleasure-seeking. All of it, Jesus nailed to the cross. All of it, Jesus paid for, and now can legally be our substitute. You know what we get? We get to be forgiven and free. We get to begin the process of cooperating with God to be made whole and restore. God, how is it that you designed my body? How is it you designed my mind? Christians should lead the way in presenting rational, sound arguments by the power of God. Second Corinthians says, For the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive so as to obey Christ. Should this happen on Sunday mornings? Absolutely. But it should happen on Tuesday mornings on your coffee break as well. Individuals, friends getting together. Band, why don't you come on up? What does God do? <clears throat> Write these down. God creates us by design that we can discern. It's not a hidden design that He knows. He's given to us. Here's how you work. Live by it. Number two, He changes us by forming Christ in us. The change is not external. Most of this is internal. Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, points out, you can have your body doing all the right stuff. I didn't kill anyone. <laughs> yeah, but you thought about it. I didn't sleep with anyone else's wife. Yeah, but you thought about it. So, he forms it by the inside out. And number three, he leads us in a life, in life by his good, perfect, and pleasing will. What do we do? <coughs> Here's what we do. We resist the pull of the world. If you live a life that is perfectly acceptable to those around you, let me tell you, let me give you a certainty. It is unacceptable to God. If you never bump into cross words and people that go, why do you live like that? You are living an unacceptable life to God. We ought to stand out. Again, I've told you this before. No one goes seeking for this. You don't have to. You go seek for Jesus and it'll start to happen to you. Number two, we cooperate with God's sanctifying work. Remember this whole responsibility section is that it's a response to the right thinking that's been washed over us for 11 chapters. And number three, we learn to discern God's will. You don't just discern it. You learn to discern it. You, use, you exercise the tools God's given to you to make that happen.